you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Ivan Maisel is a longtime sports journalist. Many of you would recognize that name because he's been working for decades with ESPN. He's known for his insightful analysis, compelling storytelling, and in-depth knowledge. Ivan's ability to blend statistical analysis while highlighting the human side of the game and capturing the emotions and experiences of athletes and coaches and fans has earned him a loyal following and widespread acclaim. If you are a fan of college football, you know his work and you know that it has mattered and elevated the entire game of football. And yet today's conversation is going to spend very little time focused on his writing, on his research, on his journalism regarding football. Instead, we're going to be talking about his life. And as we talk about his life, I think you'll also recognize, my friends, we are talking about the importance, the frailty, the beauty, the challenge the miracles and also the tragedies within our own. When Ivan's 21-year-old son, Max, went missing several years ago, he soon learned he'd have to accept the incomprehensible, that his son, his only son, his pride and joy, his little boy, had chosen to take his own life. Today, Ivan joins us to share his profoundly human and deeply empathetic and emotional story of a father's relationship with his son. We'll talk about the complications. We'll talk about some of the struggles of parenting. We'll talk about some of the difficulties and opportunities he faced with his child and his other children, the struggles to connect, what he learned, and ultimately what it means for us. My friends, let this conversation serve as a beacon of hope guiding us to embrace the joys and challenges that come our way, inspiring us to live each day, every day, boldly, and reminding us that even in the face of darkness and profound loss, that there is always possibility of finding light and always reason to believe that the best is yet to come. This is going to be an emotional conversation with a masterful storyteller and now a good friend of mine. So my friends, without further ado, let me introduce you to my buddy and soon to be yours, his name is Ivan Mazel. Ivan, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks, John. I'm delighted to be here. Well, man, it is my honor. It is a pleasure. I'm looking forward to sharing your life story with our listeners. 
for those who recognize the name, oh man, I think I've heard that guy's name somewhere. I can't place it. Maybe they recognize the voice. Give us a little commercial about the work that you've done, maybe where they've met you in the past. I have been a sports writer for more than 40 years and covered college football for the vast majority of that time, mostly uh, probably almost 20 years at ESPN for the website and, of course, on television and radio. And I also worked at Sports Illustrated, uh, the Dallas Morning News, Newsday, the Stanford Daily, if you go back far enough. Uh, my elementary school did not have a newspaper, but uh, this was pretty much what I always knew I wanted to do. You may be living on the East Coast from time to time, but you did not grow up there. You grew up in Mobile, Alabama. Talk about growing up. I want to hear a little bit about your dad, Herman. Talk about what you learned about life from Herman. My father was uh, a remarkable man. He was the fifth child of uh, Eastern European immigrants. Uh, it was a unique experience, I would say, to grow up Jewish. He was the son of immigrants in Mobile, Alabama in the middle, really the early part of the 20th century. He was born in 1925. He served in the Pacific during the war. Uh, he was wounded uh, and just by a complete fluke, uh, lived through what was a, a, you know, a horrible war. Uh, just a couple of circumstances went his way. Uh, came back to Mobile, uh, went to the University of Alabama, came back to Mobile, became a high school coach, won the state title in basketball at, at his alma mater and mine, Murphy High School, and quit coaching at the age of 30 and became a businessman. And when I was in high school, I said to him one time in the way a teenager would, uh, you know, dad, it'd be really cool if you were still coaching, why'd you quit? And he just looked at me and said, well, I've said either I could coach or you could eat, <laughs> which was, uh, that was my dad. My dad had a great sense of humor. He inculcated me in, at an early age and uh, the Marx Brothers and Abbott and Costello and all the great Jewish comedians of, of the vaudeville and radio and television era. And that really taught me how to tell a story. He and his family were all great storytellers and I, his voice is in my head still. Mm. His voice is now in my head too, not only from his storytelling, but from his his sweetness, his love, his passion, but also his directness. My, my favorite quote from your father, <laughs> Ivan, your dog is dead. Yes. I came home from high school one day and uh, he hit me right across the forehead with a two by four with that statement, which soon became a source of great hilarity. Yeah. Once we got over the fact that Sparky was gone, as we say in my family, he would lance the boil, you know, just go right at it and get it out of the way. And he was unfailingly direct. The other side of the equation is Frida. Just briefly celebrate your mom for us. That's a special topic. Mom died uh, 10 weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, was 95, had a terrific life, and, and has, uh, has landed the plane very nicely. Uh, you know, didn't suffer very much. Uh, she was a wonderful, uh, wonderfully accomplished woman. Uh, Started out as a school teacher, became a businesswoman. Was the sixth of seven children, also of Eastern European immigrants. She and my dad started dating when they were teenagers. Uh, were married sixty years. She became a extremely 
successful and groundbreaking businesswoman in, in the wholesale liquor business in the Southeast and uh, was unfailingly uh, charming and in, in that Southern way. And to the very end of my life, corrected my grammar. So that was uh, as the former English teacher that she was. And, and I used to say to her, Mom, it's still annoying between me and you. Although I would always say between you and I just to make her mad. <laughs> well, we celebrate your mom's life with you and, uh, and now her son's life with our listeners. You mentioned at the very beginning, John, I grew up and I always wanted to go into sports reporting. What, what was it about sports and reporting it that you were attracted to? I just loved sports. Still have my baseball cards one floor up. Fell asleep listening to the Braves on the radio. You know, Hank Aaron was from Mobile. So there was a sort of a connection to, uh, to baseball. And so many great baseball players of that era came from Mobile. And my parents went to Alabama, so Alabama football was a big subject, as as it still is. And you know all the jokes about the, you know, the ferocity of of fandom in the state of Alabama are are still true, and they were true 60 years ago when I was a toddler. I was immersed in it, loved it, and again, the storytelling part of my family was was a critical part of my growing up. My memories of Thanksgivings of holiday meals were of my dad and his siblings sitting around the table after dinner telling stories. Mm. And you learn rhythm and you learn cadence and you learn how to, you know, bring somebody in to telling a story. And from that, I just sort of fell into it. I, I, I had a teacher at Murphy, an English teacher, Ruth Welburn, who encouraged me that I had writing talent. So when I went to college, uh, I walked right into the newspaper and started writing. You haven't really stopped. So you walk into the room at Stanford University, you eventually graduate. What was your first job upon graduation? Uh, at the Atlanta Constitution. This was before the merger of the journal in the constitution the atlanta constitution i covered because i was 21 years old and really didn't know what i was doing uh, they gave me clemson and south carolina which were universities that were 200 within 200 miles of atlanta and had fan bases in atlanta but weren't anything that were front and center they weren't georgia and they weren't georgia tech well that was 1981 john and clemson never lost so suddenly they figured out, much to their uh, panic, that they had this 21-year-old covering a team that was in the top five in the nation. So, uh, But it was a great experience for me. And uh, from that, right after the season, I went to Sports Illustrated as a fact checker, uh, which was in the pre-Google days how yeah. the time and Sports Illustrated of the world made sure their stories were accurate. You could spend a lot of time talking about that time in New York and, and the work that you were doing back then, the fact checking that you were doing back then. But I'm more intrigued by a girl that you're, you were meeting back then, Meg. What was it about Meg that uh, you fell for and then eventually courted for six years? <laughs> the whirlwind six year courtship. Yes. It happened quick, man. Yeah. Meg, she's very smart. She thinks I'm funny. So I was, you know, immediately, oh, I have an audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's still pretty. Uh, we just hit it off. We were 
be great friends. Uh, the reason we dated six years, John, is because we had so much to figure out. You know, she's Catholic, I'm Jewish, she's from upstate New York, I'm not. And so we just had to figure out, okay, if we're going to make this life together and make it work, how are we going to do this? And, you know, we had a lot, you know, talked a lot and, and pulled apart a lot and came back together a lot and been married 34 years almost. 34 years, uh, a, a Southern man living up East, raising his kids, you got three kids. <laughs> and I've heard you tell your Southern friends, the only problem is all three of your kids talk funny. Yes. The way they hit some vowels, it's still this, you know, it's uh, still twitch a little bit when I hear it, but uh, I am clearly the outlier in this house and not to mention this neighborhood, this county, this state and, and how I speak, but up here, they still think I have an accent. And when I go home, they think I no longer have one. So I'm, I am a man without a country. <laughs> well, you're a man with a family. You, you end up having three kids, two girls and a little boy. And we're going to spend the majority of our conversation talking about one of those kids, a little fellow that I think was born into your life, January 15th, 1994. A little fellow yeah. named Max. T celebrate Max for a little bit. Talk about Max. Well, I'd be delighted to. Uh, Max was born uh, a few days early with great delight. I can remember calling my father. Uh, we named Max for my dad's brother who had died three years earlier. And my uncle Max was just a great part of my life. A brilliant man, uh, died young, had cancer. Again, very funny, great storyteller, just a warm the Yiddish word is Hamisha. He was a Hamisha guy. It was a big part of my life. So it, it was really non-negotiable that if we had a son, <laughs> and Meg loved Mac, Uncle Max too. So if we had a son, we were going to name him Max. And and Max came along and uh, he was our second child. Sarah was born uh, two years before. And uh, he was an interesting kid, John. He he. We, you know, we thought it was really a gift that he could recite childhood, you know, he could recite Dr. Seuss books complete front to back when he was two or three years old. We have a friend who is a child psychologist, and he said, well, actually, that that may be a sign of something. It is, it turned out Max was in that uh, very exact diagnosis that you often get with children uh, somewhere on the spectrum. It was not autism. It was not Asperger's. He just was wired and how he processed, processed information. It came in a little differently. It made things tough for him. Uh, didn't really connect with peers in a way that a lot of kids do because of the way, you know, he, information came in and came out. He spent a lot of time alone because of that. You know, he was, he was my son. And, and of course, so I, as my father had done, you know, immersed him in in the Marx Brothers and and in Bob and Ray, the old radio comedy team, and and Max had a delightful sense of humor, very dry. Uh, what he did not have in any way, shape, or form was an interest in sports, which I can't really describe it now. I was so stunned then and now that my son did not have an interest in sports, but I, you know, I just kind of shrugged and said, well, it's just proof that God has a sense of humor. 
you know, that this is, this is who my son is, but we, I've worked very hard to at least find some ways of connecting with him through my interests. And a lot of that was comedy. You, you a moment ago said, man, he was my son. And you, you said it in a convicted way, a prideful way, a loving way, and with a little bit of a Southern drawl. And uh, one of my friends is a guy named Gene Stallings, a man I ah, bet you know. Sure. Uh, when I was a little fellow, he was working with the St. Louis football Cardinals as their coach. And uh, this is before he went to Alabama, before he won the national championship. And I remember the pride that he would have when he spoke about his own son who had some special needs and how he would brag, like, he's my son. He's my son. Yeah. Uh, talk about that, that joy that even though he did not like football, even though he did not understand why a picture of Bear Bryant might be hanging in some people's houses in Alabama, <laughs> in spite of his inability to love the things that maybe you loved, you were wild about him anyway. What were some things you did connect on? We did connect, you know, through comedy, through movies. He loved Christopher Nolan movies. One important branch of comedy that we went straight to was Looney Tunes. He was a avid uh, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck guy, which he got from me. The one, the one place where we did connect in sports was when the NBA uh, licensed Lego to put out a set, a Lego NBA set, and, and so I read something about it and said, hey, Max, would you be interested in an NBA logo set? And he said, sure. And within about 3.7 seconds, we were in the car driving to Toys R Us, may it rest in peace. So, uh, it, you know, it, it was, uh, and from that, we, when Max was a middle schooler, started going to NBA games and probably a half dozen a season. And so he did a great job of, you know, like there were avenues to me that we both tried to keep open. I don't live in a lot of, with a lot of regrets, John, because I was, you know, as, every parent has regrets, uh, of course. And I think that when you lose a child, your regrets heighten because you can't make them up. Mm. But I know I did the best I could with Max. The one thing I wish I had done a better job of was finding a way to be more interested in the things that he did, the Pokemon, the anime, you know, which is what so many kids of his generation are interested in, and, and video games. And, you know, I just kind of thought to myself, my parents weren't really interested in what I did. You know, I mean, the, he, we're different generations. It's okay, but I wish I had worked a little harder at, sort of meeting him where he was instead of trying to pull him to where I was. I think there are warning signs. You know, it's, you don't need to wait sometimes for the smoke to come out of the engine to realize you've got a problem. And there were some lights that were blinking. One of them, because little Max was a phenomenal writer, a, a brilliant kid, man. And I'm going to read you words that showed up in your book that that moved me, that haunt me, that just made me feel, man. So I'm going to read these. These are these are words that Max wrote in middle school, I think in seventh grade. I understand that I may never be truly happy. I say that sometimes the only way to win is to clear the board completely. I dream that I will be free from my nightmares. I try to be a peacemaker between friends. I hope that I will eventually become truly happy. I am an isolator from everyone 
and a silent speaker. He wrote that in seventh grade and it rang no alarm bells with his teacher. And Meg went into his middle school and saw that on the wall and blew a gasket uh, with the teacher anyway. Max downplayed, you know, the meaning of the import of that. And he kind of just said, well, I, it's, it's, it was writing. It's not what I meant, you know, not who I am. I, I think he, I think that was the one way he said, Hey mom, you ever heard of a metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, yeah, he was the isolator part. He was alone and he would find one friend, John, and, and he would, that would be his friend. Kids at that age mature at different rates and their interests change and their friends change. And when a friend of Max's would move on, it would just devastate him. It was just very difficult to explain to him that it was not a reflection on him. It's just what kids do. And he took those lessening of those relationships, if not the disappearance of them, really hard. And it was, you know, it was heartbreaking to watch him go through that and not know how to help him. I'm just going to forward the tape a little bit and step through Max's high school and into his college and ultimately into a night where you find yourself making a cup of soup, man. You open up the soup, you get ready to pour it up and heat it up. And the phone rings at 737. Take us forward from there. Sure. Meg was uh, two blocks that way and at a friend's house uh, playing Mahjong and the uh, phone rings and it was the, the landline. You know, that's how long ago it was. It was a deputy in the sheriff's office in Monroe County, New York. And, you know, wanting to know if I was any kin to Max Maisel, mispronounced the name. I think at that point I knew, you know, I knew he was gone. It may have been another sentence or two. Let me back up one part because this is important. The winter of 2015 was awful in the Northeast. Uh, and, and it's more memorable to me because of what happened, but it was as bad a winter as we've had in almost 30 years up here. The sheriff said they had found Max's car, which had been my father's car, at a uh, town park in Lake Ontario, or on the shore of Lake Ontario. I knew right where he was talking about. This park is a mile east of my brother-in-law's home. Uh, an important place to Max and a place that he knew. So it made perfect sense that the, the truck was there. The sheriff said, it, the deputy said it had been there for 24 hours and they couldn't find Max. I looked up, subsequently looked, at, looked up the weather. It was one degree even on the Sunday night when you know Max parked there. Luckily, there was a guy in the neighborhood that used to just sit in his truck in that parking lot. And he saw Max get out of his car and walk toward the pier. And after about 45 minutes, Max did not come back. And this good Samaritan was alarmed and, and he drove to a nearby 7-Eleven and talked about it to the clerk and then called 911. So if that guy had not done what he had done, we would have been delayed in finding out that he was gone two and a half months when the water warmed up is when Max's body was recovered. 
that's really all we know, John. We don't know if he got out there and with intent ended his life. We don't know if he got out there, the intention of ending his life and then thought this is not a good idea and couldn't get back. And all we know is that he went out on the pier and onto the ice of the, of Lake Ontario and and he's gone. You wrote and you shared in the past that eventually as that ice thawed, your son and his body was found. What's that like to um, be wondering and wondering and um, pragmatic and reasonable, but also in the back of your mind, have a, just a whisper of hope and then to realize, well, they found his body and there it is. We went ahead and had a memorial service for him five weeks after he disappeared. We were really hoping he, that his body would surface just to have that sense of finality. But there were no guarantees. And, you know, I learned more about lake currents and lake temperatures than I ever wanted to know, believe me. And what it, you know, there was a possibility that he, depending where his he was in the lake that we'd never get his body back. Yeah. But the third weekend in April, some poor guy was out there fishing, you know, it was in the forties and or the water temperature was in the forties anyway, and, and came upon his body and uh, they positively identified him. I think before the weekend was over. Yeah. You mentioned during the, the answer right there that uh, John, listen, we, we knew, and that's actually why we had a memorial service. It was on March 27th. Yes. My understanding is that a, a, about a thousand of your nearest and dearest friends and family attended. My also understanding is that you and the girls, Meg and the daughters, all stood up and before the service began, you spoke, which is unbelievable. And Meg, what she did, I've, I've never seen another person do at a funeral memorial service. Uh, would you tell our listeners how your wife greeted those uh, gathered? It's a great insight into Meg, and it was a brilliant stratagem because she didn't want to speak. Meg and Max were very tight. She was shattered and, and, and still is. I mean, of course, you, you figure out how to put your life back together. But she stood up, I think it was before Sarah and Elizabeth and I spoke, and she just asked each community that was there, each little subset that had been a part of Max's life to stand. And it was, you know, from our neighborhood to his elementary school, to his middle school, to his high school, to college, to family, to my work colleagues from, you know, I had people who had, I worked with 30 years earlier who had, you know, who, who came up from Dallas. It was a really powerful representation of community and, and a way to express our appreciation for all of that support because people really tried hard to lift us up and that was a really effective way of of trying to convey what it meant to us it's beautiful and uh, it, when i read it i cried and when i hear it again i'm an inch away from it so i'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna flip the page on that and force you to take a look in the mirror not, not long after Meg does that and celebrates the gift of community, you, you begin a eulogy and probably in typical Southern spirit, man, you begin with a little bit of a, a self-effacing joke. And I'm, I'm going to quote you so I get it right. Here's what you begin with. 
I think you'll find the first 45 minutes of this are rough, but then I'll settle into a rhythm. <laughs> Tell us about the rhythm you settled into. What, what was the essence that you wanted the thousand gathered to walk away with? I wanted them to know that we were not ashamed of Max, that we had always been proud of him, uh, and that even in death, we were proud of him. I think, especially with suicide, there is a built-in sour Easter egg of, of shame, and, and our children's generation is much better than we are, and we are better than our parents but we were not going to skulk around because Max ended his life. Max was sick. I think so much of what we do in this society is when we hear the phrase mental illness, we only hear the first word. And it's the second word that is the critical one. Max was sick. And, uh, you know, he was getting therapy. He was taking medication. It didn't work. There are various, you know, theories as to why it didn't work. And, and in the end, none of them really matter. You know, he's gone. I, I kind of just decided I wasn't going to let how others felt about that bother me. Yeah. And if, and if they saw some shame in that, then that was their problem to deal with. You've written in the, in the past that mental illness needs sunlight. Yes. I knew what you mean by that. Well, we need to talk about it. I think the analogy I kept thinking of, and I think it's then and it's, it still resonates with me, is that to my parents' generation and the one before that, they didn't talk about cancer. You didn't mention the word cancer. Sometimes you didn't even tell the patient they had cancer. And once we brought cancer into the open, you know, over the course of our lifetimes, the strides that have been made have been remarkable. That's right. And what we've been able to find out about it and, and, and how to cure it. And I think we're starting to get there with mental illness. We just haven't quite fully gone there yet. You know, we're much better, certainly, than we've ever been in dealing with it. And again, kids are much more open about it now. And we need to talk about it. And we need to acknowledge that it's if your brain is not working, it can be as in, in a proper way. It can be as devastating as if any other vital organ is not working. There were so many examples of love that you ran out of pages and talking about the community and what they did and how it affected you and Meg and the girls. There, there are a couple of things, though, though, that I think are worthy of just celebrating. One is this Jewish custom of leaving pebbles on a grave site. First of all, why do they do that? And uh, as you approached your son's grave site and would see a pebble or two or a dozen, what effect does that have on you? As with uh, m many Jewish customs, if you ask two rabbis what the answer is, you get four answers. Some of them were, were pebbles at a grave site to mark them off so that you could respect them and not walk over them. Sometimes it's just as simple as leaving a remembrance that you were there, that you came to visit. The benefit of going to the cemetery and seeing those stones on his gravestone is it's just very it's a warm feeling of of caring of, of seeing that max is remembered and that people do come by and and they remember him max would be 29 years old john and 
we have gone in the last 12 months to three or four weddings of kids that he grew up with. And, you know, each one is, a, is they're wonderful and they're also a, a gut punch. It's a little punch every time you are confronted with any of that. You mentioned the wedding. I think that's a, pr a practical example. In hearing that, some might say, well, then with my friend who recently lost a child by suicide, maybe I should not invite them. Maybe it's easier if I just let them stay at home, not call them, not ask how they're really doing, not see what I can do to support them, not remind them that they lost a child. Yes. Right. We just <laughs> don't want to remind good, yeah. you and your wife, Meg, that you lost a son. So I'll, I'll not invite you to the wedding. Yeah. So for, for those of us struggling with this, because it's kind of a lose lose, if we don't look at it appropriately, how do we collectively embrace what happened and celebrate what still is? Yeah. People would come up to me and say, well, I didn't want to say anything because, you know, I didn't want to bring it up. And I would just smile at them so that they would know I wasn't being a complete jerk. But I would say, well, you know, if you hadn't have brought him up, I wouldn't have been thinking about him. It's uncomfortable, John. I mean, of course it's uncomfortable, but you know, the dirty secret of anyone who's lost anyone, much less in a tragic and, and you know, untimely way is that we want to talk about the person we lost. It keeps them around. It keeps them present. One of the many ways that death takes its toll on the survivors is that we there's only a finite amount of stories we have about Max. Certainly only a finite number of photographs. If you come to us with a story about Max, it's such a gift. Wow. You know, because we're not going to get any more uh, unless you bring us, bring them to us. You know, the advice in that regard is simply to acknowledge the death and, and to acknowledge that Max existed. Uh, yeah, it, it's painful, but it's more painful if you don't acknowledge it. If you live long enough, you're going to grieve and you're going to experience this on your own terms. And, and when you do, it will become more apparent what's the appropriate thing to do. Every death brings with it its own cost. Our daughters would look at us and think, oh my God, they lost a child. And we would look at them and say, oh my God, they lost a sibling. You know, Meg and I don't know what it's like to lose a sibling. Yeah. It's all painful. We get notes through the work we do. Um a speaker and an author and this podcast channel allows us to broadcast out the signal all over the world which also invites others to do life with us and then to share their stories and their struggles. And many struggle with, am I worth it? Is this difficult life that is mine worthy of taking the next step in? So for those right now who are listening to our conversation and they're like, man, I, I don't know if my life is even worthy of stepping into it tomorrow and the next day. What, what encouragement or advice might you have for them? It's impossible when you're on the outside to approximate the pain someone is in. Anything I say would not be to trivialize anyone's pain. If your brain tells you that the best way to end your pain is, is to end your life, that's really powerful. And it's hard. I'm not going to sit there and say to somebody, oh, try harder or, you know, come on. But the fact is, if your brain is telling you that, that's an illness. If you can get through the day, the next day may be different. The next day may be better. And there are resources out there to help people. They are overtaxed and understaffed, uh, but there are more 
you know, every day, you know, the new 988 phone number is a, just such a smart thing to do and, and such a streamlined way of getting resources to people who need them. Somebody may have been Jimmy Buffett or he just made it into a song. Somebody said it before him, but you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know, again, I'm not trying to belittle anybody's pain, but my mother's favorite saying was this too shall pass. You know, if you can just find a way to ask for help and to weather the storm, the storm just may end. We may have been raised by the same mom. Your Yours was a Southern Jewish woman. Mine was a Midwestern Catholic woman, but they both had a phrase that hung in their kitchen, this too shall pass. <laughs> and they both did an awesome job raising boys. So uh, Ivan, with that being said, we, we get to shift gears into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. Seven hopeful questions about enduring the struggles of today and recognizing that this too shall pass. So I'm, I'm going to walk you through these, through the okay. gauntlet together. Question number one is, what's been the most influential or the best book you've ever read? Well, I'll tell you what my favorite book is, which may be different. It's written by Red Smith, the, the sports columnist who dominated sports journalism for the, the meat of the 20th century. It was uh, not a coincidence, I guess, that it was posthumous, but it is a collection of his obituary columns of people in the sport sporting world that he remembered and it's called two absent friends and it's a great collection of his work and his ability to put words together in a meaningful entertaining pithy way and i i reread it all the time mm. i have not heard of it sounds like an awesome read what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possess as a little kid growing up in mobile alabama that you wish you exemplified as brilliantly today <laughs> Empathy. Wow. I was a crier as a kid, uh, you know, and I sort of let society cure me of that. And, and I wish I was as good at it now as I was as a child. If your home caught fire and all living people and pets are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one thing, what would you come racing back outside with? That is a really good question. Probably some memento of Max. You know, I, I've got uh, I've got something he gave me for Father's Day when he was six years old that hangs in my closet. I would probably grab that. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated directly next to? My father's mother. Her name was Rebecca Mazel. She died when I was 15 months old and she, her husband died uh, when my dad was 10 years old. And, you know, she again was an immigrant, ran a grocery store in, uh, in Mobile. I just heard stories about her my whole life and I'd, I'd love to be able to, to talk to her. What's the best advice your grandmother or Meg or your counselor or your father or mother or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Best advice I've received, I think, is the golden rule. Uh, you know, just treat people the way you want to be treated. If you could hop on an airplane, fly out to California, and go back and encourage your 20-year-old self with some wisdom, what would you say to that college junior? Classes are actually interesting. You should go to one. <laughs>
Robert Maisel, it has been said that all great people and writers and dads and human beings can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He loved his family because that encompasses, you know, my entire life. And family has always been really important to me. Uh, and I w was taught that way from an early age that you would always be able to count on your family. Evan Mizell, thank you for loving your family. Thank you for loving your three kids. And thank you for reminding us of, uh, of the challenges of life, of the finiteness of life, but also the the beauty of it all, man. It's it's a, a beautiful life work that you are assembling. The book was brilliant and uh, we appreciate you. Well, thanks, John. And thanks for, you mentioned two or three times, my three children and Max is still our child. So that, that's a nice touch. Thanks for having me. My friends, that is Ivan Mizell. He is the author of the book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. I've read so much of the work we do around here is to make sure people live inspired. And we spend a lot of time talking about the second part of that naming convention, the inspiration piece. But I don't ever want to forget about the value and the critical element of the first, to live, to live. Uh, so I want to make sure as you live forward that if you or someone you know and love might be struggling with thoughts of suicide, you have a number at your fingertips to reach out to. To our friends at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and you can always reach out to them at 1-800-273-8255. Just one more time. That's 1-800-273-8255. There are people there standing by ready to support you and those you love on the journey forward to live inspired. If you enjoyed hearing the love that Ivan's dad had for his son, I think you'll enjoy this loving father's story that I brought to you just a couple months back. The name of the gentleman we brought on was Derek Redmond. And the love that he had for his dad and that his father had for his son is unmistakable. You'll find it in episode 542. And just to give you a little bit of preview of what you might be stepping into. After tearing his hamstring at the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona... Derek was stumbling to finish the race, but not without the help of his dad. When one of the greatest Olympic scenes of all time, into that race steps the father, steps his love, and the son puts his arm around it and him, and together they finish that race. They didn't finish it alone, though. It wasn't just the two of them. It was 65,000 on their feet, roaring their approval, as these two beautiful guys crossed the finish line together. Jim, the dad, dodged security and began running alongside his son in what would become known as one of the most inspirational moments in all of sports. Derek and I met. We had a conversation of perseverance, of teamwork, of self-belief, and also about a father and a son and the love they shared. You won't want to miss it. You can check that out one more time at episode 542 or cruise on over to this most recent episode, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And I'll have a link in there directly to Derek's episode. My friends, I want to thank you for your life. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. 
And I want to remind you that the foundation of your life and ours is firm. The headwind we face, it may be real. And yet, the best is yet to come. This is good news for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely.com.